I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 61 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and what I am calling the beginning of Masters March. This month on the Talking Golf History Podcast, we will be releasing five podcasts, and four of them will include stories with a connection to the Masters. Folks, I don't even know how to describe the podcast you're about ready to listen to. We start our show completely off topic and dive right into Ben Wright's role in putting the Beatles on TV for the first time and the gift of a Ferrari from George Harrison. We jump cut from there into Ben's description of Augusta National's clubhouse and accommodations, the CBS illegal Calcutta, his three favorite memories of the Masters, how he may have cost a friend the Masters, and finally, his thoughts on broadcasting today. We have a remarkable show ahead. A very special thanks to my friend and producer, Vaughn Halyard of Story Lounge Films, who filmed this episode and breaks the third podcast wall at the end of the show. Folks, if you are here for this amazing and perhaps untold story of the Beatles, lend me your ears for the next 15 minutes. I won't take any time at all, pun intended. Let's dive into Ben Wright and the Beatles. Welcome to Talking Golf History with Ben Wright. We'll be doing a little of talking of Beatles history here in a second. Ben, thanks again for coming on the show. <laughs> My extreme pleasure, Connor. Seriously, uh, uh, I, lo- I love storytelling. And although I'm 88, I- I'm very fortunate I have instant recall about anything to do with golf. But if it was what I did or what I had for breakfast, I've forgotten. Well, I hope my wife is listening because I have the same affliction. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ben, last time I was here, we did three hours of podcasting. It was amazing stories of golf's history. And I was wrapping up the recording equipment and... Literally, when I'm walking out the door, I hear the story that you put the Beatles on TV for the first time ever. Yes, I did. Please tell that amazing story. Okay. I'd been fired by the Daily Mirror in London uh, because I pushed golf too much. And this was a left-wing, definitely anti-golf tabloid. And so I, I, they, they got sick of me and I got fired. So I was a struggling freelance, and my first wife was the senior production assistant at Granada when the independent network opened, and Granada opened in 1958. And I was very glad to get a job, you know, because it was not easy as freelancing. Anyhow, I got the job of 
producing the weekly, weekly television uh, sports program on Granada Television. Sidney Bernstein, who owned the network, hated sport. So I only got 20 minutes of a program called Scene at 6.30, S-C-E-N-E at 6.30. And I had to have pop music for the last 10 minutes so it would lead in to Mr. Bernstein's prize soap opera. One day, and it was a Thursday when I put my program out, in the hotbed of sport in Britain, Manchester, City, Manchester City, Manchester United, I mean, a whole bit. Anyhow, I had to get these musical operators every week, and I leaned very heavily on a very friendly, lovely Irish tenor called Val Dunican, who whose act was to sit on a high stool alone on the stage, strum his guitar, and sing in this unbelievably beautiful Irish tenor. In those days, there was no videotape, so everything was live. We had a rehearsal, a dress rehearsal, and then the show was live. So... On the morning in question, Val called me. By the way, he would come up, we'd do the show, and we'd play golf the next day before he went back to London. So that's why you really had him on the show. Yes. <laughs> I know you too well. <laughs> Anyhow, he could barely talk with laryngitis and said, I can't make it. And I said, of course not. And this was now... 11 to 11.30 in the morning, and I'm in a heck of a panic now because rehearsal's at three and I've got nobody. And so I summoned my associate producer um, called Dick Fontaine, who was known as Tricky Dicky, and um, I'll leave that to your imagination. Why? And I said, uh, Tricky... Uh, get me some musicians, but quick. He said, oh, yes, Mr. Ben. I scuttled off to his office and less than half an hour later came back and said, I have got for you four of the most beautiful young boys from Liverpool who appear at the, every night at the cavern. And I said, and who are they? And he said, they call themselves the Beatles. I said, Beatles? I hate friggin' Beatles. <laughs> I, they're, they're disgusting creatures. Uh, they had better be good after telling me that. So they arrive. He said they were already on their way. And um, that's it's a 30-mile drive down the East Lancashire Road. It's a good pass road. They arrived... And honestly, I've never seen four scruffier individuals probably in my whole life. They stank of tobacco because, you know, the cavern was a subterranean place with no uh, no ventilation. At least it was tobacco. Yeah. Well, Could have been yeah, something else. Yeah. Uh, and they, were, they had long 
very greasy hair. And I said, Tricky, take these boys to the Midland Hotel up the street and get them cleaned up and quaffed and bring them back in white shirt, black pants and black pumps. Yes, sir, he said, and they took them away. And when they came back, it would be about two o'clock and when they got to rehearse at three, and I can honestly say they looked like a million dollars. So anyhow, to cut a long story short, they did their rehearsal and very seldom, if ever, they got a standing ovation from the technicians in the studio. You know, that almost never happened. They did a fast number and a slow number. And I said, very good, you know, you've lived down that awful name. And they did the show and... And you paid them what? I, I, I think you told me how much you paid them. Well, yeah. Uh, they did the show and they got another standing ovation from the, from the crew. So I took them up to my office and I gave John Lennon a check for uh, 500 pounds, which meant 125 per man. And John Lennon turned to the three mates and he said, boys, we're fucking rich. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, Mr. Wright, can we come back tomorrow? I said, no, John, you can't come back tomorrow because I don't have a show on Fridays. More's the pity. But you can come back in a month. So he came, they came back in a month. To my amazement, there were 3,000 people milling around outside the studios trying to get in. To see them. And you didn't know why, right? I mean, the I, Beatles... I, you know, my taste in music was Oscar Peterson, Ella Fitzgerald, Stan Getz. In other words, Norman Grant's at the Philharmonic, which he had put on in London called Norman Grant's at the Palladium. Uh, when they did the show. So that was my taste in music. Yeah, you didn't see anything special with these no, Beatles no, fellas. No, because we'd had Herman and the Hermits and one or two other of those Liverpool-based groups. And no, I, I, to me, it was just another rubbish. Good thing you had a career in golf. Yes. <laughs> so 3,000 people outside. 3,000 people. So I... Same thing again. They asked if they could come back tomorrow. And I said, no, a month from now. They came back again. And at midday on the day in question, the Thursday in question, the police called me, Manchester Police, and said, we have got a real problem with your Beatles. And I said, I... I suppose they got drunk and got done for drunk, drunk driving or something. He said, no, sir. You know, we've got 15,000 people outside the studios trying to get in. We recommend that you lock all, all, the, inter, all the interlocking doors in the, in, the, in the building. 
in the studio. So we did that. And I, I really started to realize that we had happened purely by chance on something special. I mean, I imagine the Irish tenor probably had like 10,000 fans outside, usually. <laughs> no, <laughs> 10 maybe. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I said, come back again in another month. They never did because they found Brian Epstein, who became their manager, and uh, he said, he could phone me and said, uh, if you want my boys, uh, Mr. Wright, you, we'll start at 5,000. And uh, that is a negotiating point to start. And, of course, I had to say, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Epstein, but we don't have that kind of budget. I mean, there's a fledgling network, you know. And you had your Irish tenor. So, I mean, you had your music <laughs> composition ready. <laughs> so that was the end of that story. Well... It would have been at least 10 years later. I have moved from Manchester. I have a 16th-century cottage on the village green in a little Surrey village called Ewhurst. And I would walk across the village green to the village pub on a regular basis. And I went there on a Sunday night one time. And George Harrison flings himself all over me, kisses me on both cheeks and said, God, Mr. Wright, you know, you made it for us. I said, no, George, you, you guys made it for yourselves. No, he said, you made us. You put us in the white shirt and the black pants and the black boots. And I said, well, yes, I did that. Uh, and he said, well, you probably noticed we don't wear anything else. And I said, I had noticed, yeah. Um, he said, I want to express my gratitude by giving you something of, of slight value. And um, I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, I'm up, up, up on the hill in a mansion and I'm shacked up with Lord Harlock's daughter, and he has threatened to shoot me if he can get his hands on me. And I've got five or six cars, and I can only use one at a time. Why don't I give you a car? And I said, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I suppose that would be a very nice idea, thinking it'd be a... Austin or Morris or sure, something yeah. like that. He said, I've got a Ferrari. And, of course, suddenly my ears prick up as, as a boy racer. I thought, oh, 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 someone wants to give me a Ferrari. I could no, George Harrison wants to give you a Ferrari. <laughs> it's not somebody. It's George Harrison's Ferrari. I said, okay, George, I'll take it. And uh, he said, well, we have got a gig to do in Wembley Stadium just gig. in a week's time. And after that, uh, I'll drive there in the Ferrari. And after that, you can have it. So he goes to Wembley Stadium, and they had 100,000 people. It's one of the largest concerts of all time, and he, he just called it a gig. 
<laughs> Throw away with a gig, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. They were in a boxing ring in the center of the stadium. Anyhow, they didn't get away from Wembley Stadium till two in the morning. On the way home, George went to sleep at the wheel. In your Ferrari? In my Ferrari. <laughs> and he crashed in the next door village to ours amongst the tombstones. And he bounced around, apparently, from what I learned later. But he came out without a scratch. Well, the Ferrari was a write-off. Your Ferrari? My Ferrari. Was a write-off. Yes, was a write-off. And um, George was so embarrassed. I never heard from him after that. And uh, apparently left the neighborhood, too. Mm. Um, so that was the end of the story, really. Well, it, it's very clear to me that Paul or Ringo owe you a Ferrari. That's a cost thing. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Paul, Ringo, if you're out there, Ben Wright's still here. He wants his Ferrari. <laughs> A vintage one. We could go vintage, right? Vintage Ferrari. Right? That'd be work. 1980 Ferrari would work, right? Well, yeah. And the lucky thing, my wife at the time, yet another, was an American socialite, uh, Victoria Kelly, whose uh, mother was Brenda Duff Frazier III, who was number one Deb in America in 1938 and had a photograph on in uh, Life magazine, on the cover of Life wow. magazine. She, my daughter gave me an Aston Martin that she had customs painted in British racing green, which they didn't do at the factory at that time. And that was a nice compensation. Not quite George Harrison's Ferrari, but you'll <laughs> take it. I would take it. <laughs> So one of the things we were talking about, uh, Ben, bef before we started recording, was that you spent significant amount of time at Augusta National, not just up in the tower in 15, but on the course, playing the course, in the cabins. And I was wondering if you could share with our audience what it's like to be at and in Augusta National, you know, inside the ropes, I suppose you'd say, inside the cabins, inside the clubhouse. Most people will never see that pristine place. What is it like? Um, it's remarkably ordinary. The clubhouse is just a little converted farmhouse. I think one of the first concrete buildings in the South. Yeah, and it's really a very humble building. But we were in the Eisenhower cabin. I'll tell you the story. We would arrive at the invitation of Horde Hardin, who was then the, the chairman of of, of Augusta National. We would arrive on Monday afternoon, Summerall, Pat Summerall and myself. Frank Chikinian at the time lived just up the road in Augusta because he'd moved there because the Masters had become his, his baby, baby yeah, with the absolutely. network. And, you know, it would, um, we, CBS, the only network had ever did the Masters, and the network wanted him to make sure they didn't lose it. And so 
Pat and I arrived around four o'clock in the afternoon at the Eisenhower cabin, and Mr. Hardin showed me to Eisenhower's bedroom. Humble little bedroom with a, one single bed in it. And, um, you know, uh, it, it was quite extraordinary. The, the room, the walls were lined in, in uh, black and white photographs of all the bases at which Eisenhower oh, very was cool. stationed. It was absolutely amazing. See how many he had been stationed at in his long and distinguished career. And um, But here it was, the most humble little bedroom with one small window. Of course, a bathroom indeed. But uh, Summerall and Mr. Hardin were, had uh, rooms downstairs, bedrooms downstairs. Um, quite a big cabin. I mean, we're talking about basement and two floors ahead, yes. Well, the butler cabin, which is famous for TV, the studio is in the basement of the butler cabin. Right. Yeah, most right. people probably don't know that. No, a lot of people don't know that. Uh, anyhow, um, we would uh, have cocktails downstairs, which Mr. Hardin uh, concocted himself. He was beloved of martinis. I don't dislike them. Uh, and then we'd have, have a three or four of those and then walk across the lawns, um, you know, close to the putting green, uh, to the main dining room in the clubhouse, which was quite big. Yeah. Describe that. If you're walking into the main dining room, uh, obviously you have tables, but... W- what does it look like? I mean, if, if you were, I mean, are we looking at carpet? Is it wood floors? Are there like photos or memorabilia on the walls? Like how does that celebrate it throughout? Photo, photos on the walls, memorabilia photos yeah. on the walls. Yeah. It's quite a humble room. I mean, it's, it's not ornate in any way. It's just a damn nice, comfortable uh, dining area. And so we would have that, went back to the cabin, had a nightcap, and on the following morning we would go walk across again to the men's grill, which is upstairs in the humble clubhouse. And what is the men's grill like? Like, if you could give us a picture. Is there a bar in the middle of the room, or what's it's, that uh, like? the table The tables are covered in white linen. Uh, tablecloths, and there are very few of them. I mean, probably at most ten. And um, sometimes the guys would pull the tables together, you know, if there were ten of them, maybe ten guys would get together. Of course, it was men only. And um, But again, humble. Nothing ornate. Nothing ornate about it. And once again, pictures of memorabilia on the walls, photographs and stuff. So is the atmosphere, if you're there as a guest, is it um, stodgy or is it, you know, you know what I mean? Is it loose? Is it? It's very loose. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't, I, you know, most outsiders wouldn't know, right? If it no. was 
very if you felt strict or constrained no no or if it was no no it was really very homely i think you would say so as a guest you do you feel like a member while you're there yes you felt like a member it felt like an honor to be there so we'd have breakfast and you could have anything you wanted the very very good food there i mean beautiful food excellent wines too Terrific wine cellar. I went to the wine cellar one time. Oh, I've heard amazing things it's about the wine cellar. Absolutely incredible. I mean, a rabbit warren in the basement. Absolutely hundreds of bottles of wine, mostly of the upmarket variety, I might add. But, so we'd have the breakfast and then go to the practice area. Very few people. The, the whole time you're there, there's it's not it's never overcrowded no, with people. Very few people, uh, particularly because it was the week before the Masters sure. itself, and so then we go and play uh, the big course, and um, Hardin and Chikinian played some role and I, and we dusted them most of the time. How were they as players? Well, the Chikinian's a very good player. Um, Summerall, a very good player. Hardin had been a quarter finalist in the United States amateur, so he was no slouch, but he'd got old and he masqueraded off an 18 handicap, which was a little sort of open Hard to suspicion. Hard to play, too. <laughs> Anyhow, we. I think we won all the time, Summerall and I. And uh, so then we go into the men's locker room and the dining area down there. Now that is even smaller than the men's grill and very unpretentious. I mean, totally unpretentious. And have lunch there. And then Mr. Hardin, God rest his soul, (laughs) would say... He had work to do, which was lie. He was going to the cabin for a nap. So Summerall and uh, Chikini and I played skins on the par three. We played 54 holes skins every afternoon of the three we were there. And then got cleaned up and same ritual Cocktails, yeah. cocktails, dinner, nightcap, and away we went. And this was the week before yes. the Masters um, We got in on the Monday afternoon, played Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then departed Friday. And, of course, I returned on Monday because I always had me do some rotary lunch or something like that early in the week. You had to earn your corn, you know. And um, I must tell you, one time we're, we're playing number eight, the uphill par five. And I got on the front of the green, front right of the green with my third shot. And um, it looked to me um, like I had a pretty big swing on uh, a putt right to left because the green slipped down, sloped down to the front. And um, I went to aim it about 15 feet 
right at the hole. It was only a 20-foot putt. And uh, Caddy said to me, and I remember Caddy had no teeth, and he was a super chap, and I really enjoyed his, uh, he really took me around and mm -hmm. showed me the ropes. And he said, Mr. Wright, forget it. You are going to have to pot up to the top of the green and let it come down, and that's the only way you're going to stay on the green. And I said, you're kidding me. He said, listen, sir, I've been here for 20 years, for goodness sake. And this is the way it's got to be. So knocked it up to the top of the green, comes back, goes in the hole. It went in the hole? It went in the hole. And Hardin, in a very loud voice, right. said, what the something was that? <laughs> And the few people on the golf course all claim they heard yeah, right. the, the F word. Right, right. Get the echoes throughout the empty yes, course. Yes, And I shall never forget that as long as I live. Um, but it was such a pr privilege, um, such fun. But on this occasion, I wanted to make the point that Mr. Hardin, when he saw that puck to go in and made this loud noise, he summoned the green superintendent and said, you're going to have to back off before the event. Oh, based on that? Yes, he said, these are just outrageously quick. And uh, the so he had the superintendent measure the speed, and they were 20. What? On the stim. What year is this? I couldn't tell you. I mean, I mean, it's in the 80s or 90s, though. Yes. And it's, it was a 20. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he had him back off. A uh, bit. <laughs> thank God. Yeah. There would be a riot. Yeah, I think Augusta is Augusta the only course that doesn't share the stimp, or one of the few that doesn't share the stimp speed with the players. Uh, I think that's true. I, I think that's probably true. Probably because it was a 20. I think there was a two. But yeah, but I mean, he said, even Hardin said, this is absolutely outrageous. Wow. And so uh, I played a little part in that Masters, whichever year it was. It, but, it, you know, the whole thing was such a privilege. I can't even imagine. I mean, I think for people at home or in the car listening to the show or watching on TV, what is it like playing in that bastion of golf that so few get to see? And even when you get to see it, you're behind a rope. You know, yes. you, you know just giving that description of what the clubhouse looks like yes. and, and how downplayed it is versus all the pomped and circumstance yes. of the club and the yes. course. It's quite, a, it's quite a humble clubhouse because it's been added on to and it's really a bit of a mishmash. Mm -hmm. uh, but still has an aura about it, of course, of the history involved. You know, um, there was uh, Clifford Roberts, um, who ran the show with Bobby Jones in, in when it started in 1934. He was the one who said in the 60s, 
we're never going to become a real major until we invite the world's press. And that is how I got my first invitation to attend the Masters when I was the first ever golf correspondent of the Financial Times newspaper in London. And I must tell you about that. I went to uh, Heathrow Airport. We flew. They flew us first class in Pan Am on a 747. We went upstairs to have uh, lunch on beautiful china and crystal and a white tablecloth, the whole bit, in the upstairs of a 747. And when we got to Heathrow, we were whisked in a limousine, there were five of us, as, as I remember, um, all the best English newspapers, tele, Daily Telegraph, Times. All came in together. The Guardian, yeah, we all came together, mm. five of us. They whisked us across to uh, La Guardia, and we got in uh, a private jet. I remember the inside of the cabin, the, there were armchairs set all different angles. Um, so it was nothing regimented about it at all. And on each armchair, there were huge arms. And you pulled out a drawer on each arm. And on one arm were a collection of glasses. And on the other arm, a collection of liquors and wines and whatever quite amazing to me so uh, being much younger than my colleagues i availed myself <laughs> well they're there to be drank right yeah. and then we got to augusta whisked by uh, a limousine up to the club and of course to go down magnolia lane well in first class treatment apparently oh, right oh man i mean just just the experience of going down Magnolia Lane, I, I, most people, most golfers would die for that yeah. alone. And um, then we met Charles Yates and, all, and several of the other gentlemen, uh, including J Jackson T. Stevens, who was the head of the Stevens Company in Little Rock, Arkansas, and, and as a matter of fact, succeeded. Uh, Horde Hardin as chairman of the club, and um, I we were given we were sent by limousine to our respective billet, which was a magnificent mansion with in Augusta, with a swimming pool. Really, yes. put up there. Mm -hmm. Wow! And uh, two lovely ladies in white uniforms and white shoes to look after our every whim. I mean. For the press, that's amazing, right? That they would yeah. really take care of you that well. Yes, 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 absolutely. I shall never forget it. I mean, it was high on the hog, you know, really. Your time at the Masters is really intriguing to me anyway, because uh, obviously I think what your second Masters ever, Gary Player wins his second, and you knew him as a boy. Uh, yes. And then a couple years later, you have the European invasion. Yes. The European invasion. But first of all, I had to be vetted 
by Clifford Roberts. And my boss at CBS, Bill McPhail, uh, whose brother was commissioner of one of the baseball leagues, um, I had to be vetted by him. And it's a very funny story, I think. Uh, McPhail took me down to Mr. Roberts' cottage and uh, thrust me in through the door and fled. And... Um, Mr. Roberts fixed me with a baleful glare and said, Do you like tea, boy? Like most of you limeys? And I said, Yes, I do. And he said, You have Augusta National's finest. Pour yourself a cup of tea before we talk. So I poured myself a cup of tea and burned myself trying to slop it down. And... uh, so I said, I'm, I'm ready now, Mr. Roberts. And he, he said, um, talk to me, boy. And I said, what would you like me to talk about? And I'm getting more and more frantic now. And he said, I don't care. Just talk to me, boy. So I started to tell him about my mediocre career. That's right. <laughs> and uh, he I'd gone fully in a minute and a half, and he put his hand up, stop. And I thought, I've blown it. And he said, you probably want to know why I stopped you so soon. You know, he spoke with this very slow intonation. And I said, well, it would be nice. And he said, well, I'll tell you, my boy. He said, last year, that ass, MacPhail, <laughs> sent in a gentleman from Scotland called Bob Ferrier. His father was wee Bobby Ferrier, who played for Scotland at soccer. But he was a writer, and I didn't understand an effing word he said for four <laughs> days. But you'll do. You'll do. You'll do. That was it. And Dismissed. Yeah. And so that's how I came to broadcast the Masters for 27 odd years. Yes. It's unbelievable. For CBS. Um, but Mr. Roberts was extremely kind to me because I started out like all rookies at the 14th hole. And it was... Brutal weather that year. Was that 73? Probably the most brutal I've ever known, 73. And Oosterhouse had to sleep two nights on the lead. And he eventually uh, didn't win and, and Tommy Aaron won. But the point was, when he was leading and the rains came and play was called, I was fetched to the butler cabin, wearing every piece of clothing I could lay my hands on, pushed in front of the lights alongside Peter's house, who I happened to have known since he was a 15-year-old boy and a prodigy. You know, big fella, 6'3". Yeah. And uh, I did a 27-minute fill and virtually melted under the lights. And at the end of it, um, 
I, the, we handed over to the newsroom at five o'clock, which was a contractual time to get out on a, on a, on a rain out. I said to Pat Somerall, Pat, why the hell did you get me from the 14th Tower to talk to Mr. Oosterhaus? And he said, because I can't pronounce his effing name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mr. Roberts has watched this and he was suitably impressed. So he told McPhail, Billy McPhail, uh, to move me to a more prominent position. And I had the 15th, 15th. Hole from 74 onwards. And as you say, so Gary... just one year, yeah. Gary won in 74, and I was like, oh, I was like a dog with two tails because I'd known him man and boy, you know. But, I mean, what a wonderful, what a wonderful position to have occupied for so long. I mean, you literally watched history be played. Yes, and you know, the important thing, Colin, in those days, the guys would drive to the top of the hill and then debate in their own minds whether to go for it. Absolutely. Over the pond or lay up. And it was a case of one or the other Whereas now, of course, John Daly got there sandwich with yeah. his second shot. So it's become four and a half. Still at least not four and a half. But it was a bona fide five in my early days. And, of course, I generated what I thought was excitement by talking about the increased heartbeat of the man at the top of the hill oh. as he made this momentous decision whether to go for it or not. And, of course, there were many who went for it and who didn't make it. I, mean, I, I would still say it's one of the most exciting holes, but back then yes. you're hitting a two-wood. Yes. Three-wood. Yes. I mean, it was uh, Saracen's two-wood, right? I sure. mean, it was, just, it was yeah. everything you had. Everything you and had. And if you come up short, yeah. your Masters might be done. Yes, exactly. And was. And I remember Trevino taking 11 there. Of course, he was never a factor at the Masters because there was a social element to that. He never felt comfortable at Augusta National. But, you know, uh, that that was extremely exciting early period of my life at Augusta. Well, I mean, and just uh, fast forward, obviously, but 1980... Seve comes, oh. and when he breaks in, I mean, like no European had ever won the Masters. Yes, in 1980, basically from the booth, you watch history. Yes, as the first of nine majors won in a 15-year period by Europe. Yes, nine out of 15. Yes, and it was terrific for me, particularly because um, we CBS had a totally illegal Calcutta. <laughs> what? What? By invitation only. <laughs> and um, Let's hear that. And uh, Pat Summerall, God rest his soul, he was one of my closest friends. Um, he had the opinion that the Europeans couldn't play golf. So I 
beat him like a drum. Nine out of 15 years, right? I mean, yes. Unbelievable. And, uh, and I actually won seven Calcutta's at CBS. And I'm talking about... Yeah, what are we talking about? Well, 1979, I bought Fuzzy Zella mm-hmm. out of a pool for 50 bucks. The winner. Yeah. I won $26,000. Whoa! For 50. So you won more, I'm guessing, than you probably got paid back then to do Not the... a lot much more. Now, but $26,000. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I, you know, when I wow. ended up at CBS, I was paid 10000 a day. Mm. A working day. That's unbelievable. Including, including rehearsal days. Oh, that's amazing. It is amazing. They don't get anywhere near that now. But I was I was lucky enough to be around in the golden era right. of the big three, and and of course the pretenders to the big three, the Johnny Millers, Weisskopf, you know, they all shined in their time. Or, yeah, they really did. Yeah, they gave it a good run, but couldn't quite break in, could they? No, no. So it's. I uh, I really, I, I just, I can't believe my luck, Connor. Absolutely. But then I think, I, I mean, I still think of those nine of 15 years Europe won. What an amazing time for you. Oh, yes. To watch some of yes. your compatriots win yes. one of the most revered tournaments in the world. Yes, and I was the one who really... Put Seve on the map. That's right. You did the first interview with him. Yes. For Sports Illustrated, you know, I came to have a wonderful relationship with him, which was love-hate, Yeah, admittedly. Was that something special, seeing him realize the oh. Masters Championship? Oh. I mean, he, I mean who better to oh. break the European barrier than Seve? Oh, no. It was so brilliant. And he was so brilliant. Ben Crenshaw, who I spend a lot of time with announcing on other tournaments, of course, because at the Masters he was winning. <laughs> yeah. um, but he said that Seve had invented so many shots that he, Ben Crenshaw, would never have thought of. He never drove it as consistently as he might have. You know, if he had an Achilles heel, he would occasionally hit one off the world, like the car park shot he he made at the 16th, winning the British Open for the first time. So, um, Seve was an incredibly... Wonderful. I mean, he had a smile that was Hollywood, for yeah. goodness sake. You know, I almost wonder if, if Seve could drive the ball like Hogan, oh. would, we ha- would we be so taken by him? Because really, when no. you think of Seve, it's these remarkable recovery shots, right? Yes. It's these amazing sand wedges that nobody else is going to hit, or this hooking curve, or going through the, the palmettos and curving it around. It's just... Yeah. It's the misses and then the recoveries yeah. that make his legend so fabulous. Yes, I think you're, you're absolutely correct there. 
Although when he won the Masters uh, twice, uh, he was mostly on 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 the straight and narrow. Yeah. Um, but he, in later years, when he lost his driving completely, I suspect that had something to do with the brain cancer that sure. killed him. Took him too early. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most tragic thing imaginable. Um, I loved him like a brother, but um, oh, is, well. is he one of your favorites? Can you ha- did you have a favorite? Well, Can I you didn't. Have a favorite? I tried. It's the other one. Yeah, I tried not to, but obviously, I was very friendly with Tom Weisskopf, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, I loved Savi, and uh, oh, oh, you know, it was nice. To have little Gary Player, you know, winning as much as he did. He was an extraordinary guy because as far as the Euros were concerned, he was the first person to really take fitness seriously and become an athlete. We were not athletes in my young day. We were drinkers and wenches and... (laughs) And ne'er do wells. Right. And a lot of the pros were too. They wouldn't like me saying that. But. Yeah, no, I get that. It was a different time for sure. Yes, it didn't, was. We obviously don't, didn't have back then the uh, media scrutiny that you have now. No. No. Exactly right. Back then you probably went and out we, drinking with Ben Wright. Exactly. And you know something? We respected them. We respected them off the golf course if they wanted to go crazy yeah we never never. but you knew of those stories where they went off the charts a little bit exactly yeah you just didn't report on it yeah yeah nine winners from europe during your time nine winners from europe yeah they're coming down 15 you probably can't say so on you know the telly but you're rooting for them aren't you I suppose like I was. CBS isn't going to get mad now. I mean, I, like I, I, I suppose I was right. You get yeah. woozy coming down. You know the stretch with the lead, or yeah. I must say, you know, um, I would as soon as they went through fifteen, I would go back to the cabin after and, everyone had passed through fifteen. Yeah, yeah, and watch the rest of it, and. When I watched Sandy Lyle's bunker shot at the last, that was one of the most magnificent strokes I've seen under pressure in my whole life. You know, I, that was something else. Or hoax miss against Faldo, the putt. Yes. Oh. I mean, just tragic. I mean, tragic. there's so much drama yes. at the Masters, at Augusta National. Yes. Indeed, there is. Speaking of drama, I mean, one of the last tournaments you ever called, right? Ben Crenshaw. Yes. If you wouldn't mind going into that. I know you're a friend with Ben Crenshaw, and he lost Harvey Penick, as did Davis Love. Yes. uh, Earlier that week. Yes, and they went to um, his funeral service in Austin, and uh, neither of them had time for a practice round. They came back. On the Wednesday. I think, did Ben, did he debate on whether to play in the Masters? Yes. I thought I read that somewhere. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, it's just so uncanny that Ben Crenshaw won. 
and Davis Love the Third was second. Second, right. I mean, it's it's quite beyond the realms of possibility. Yeah, you would think. I mean, on top of that, he wasn't playing well no. at the end of the tournament. I mean, he was nowhere near a favorite. No. His time for many people had thought had passed. Yes, and Davis loved likewise. Absolutely. It was, I suppose that was really as an emotional a master as I ever saw. Because I respected Ben's respect for Harvey Penick. And of course, I didn't know much about Davis. Uh, but... Oh, man. I mean, that was so dramatic and so uncanny. It was a, high, a nice night, nice way to go out. Absolutely. I yeah. didn't bargain on it. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, just watching that happen, I can't. I mean, I remember watching the telecast, and it seemed like the world was holding its breath. I mean, they wanted it so bad. And how often can someone you know, deliver yes. with that much pressure, yes. wanting to win it for Harvey, you yes. know? Yeah. Especially when you weren't playing well before. I mean, it would have been totally excusable for Ben to give one up yes. and not play well. Uh, or even not play at all. Absolutely. Uh, it is, I, don't, I, still, I still find it difficult to believe. But believe it yeah. or not, it happened. Yeah. And, uh, and unfortunately, it was my last Masters. What, like when you look back at the Masters, you look back at yourself up in the tower, what moments, if you can name like three moments that stand out to you that were just special to you? And, and they don't even have to be a player. It could be just that a moment in time that just well, stands out. Of course, um, pride of place has to go to Jack Nicklaus in the 1986 Masters. I mean, a good friend of mine, Tom McCollister, in the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, had written him off and uh, in a column, I think on the Monday of Masters weekend, uh, um, Barbara and Nicholas put a clipping on the door of the refrigerator in their rented home. So Jack, every time he went to the refrigerator, saw that he was written off as I has been, and to come and win. And, you know, to shoot 30 on the back nine at the age of 46 with a bogey. With a bogey. That's what most people forget. Yeah, they do forget. And... Um, you know something, that that has to be the pride of place, of course. And I did say, yes, sir. That's right. <laughs> so that was, that was one moment. Give me two more moments that stand out to you. Well, of course, the 1975 Masters was unbelievably brilliant in that Nicholas finished first and Tom Weisskopf and Johnny Miller both had a, a putt to tie mm. and didn't make them. And in fact, my friend Weisskopf uh, was run up no less than four times and the Masters never won, which is cruel and, and ridiculous the way he swung a golf club. Yeah. The way he played, he should have won 10 majors. Right, unrewarded for his but brilliance. But he was his own worst enemy, yeah. as he would 
be only too quick to admit he's now dry for many, many years, but he's a very wild man, very wild man. Um, I remember at one stage we were doing the Hilton Head tournament and we had a house on the 16th green and Tom had a bedroom upstairs and he never made it to the bedroom. He slept on the couch in the living room because he would drink himself silly. And what had happened, he'd got disqualified. They claimed he'd played a shot at 16 right there outside our house from an out-of-bounds position. And they disqualified him and he was just incensed because he, he didn't like to be accused of cheating, which sure. he was. Yeah. And, uh, and anyhow, at some stage, uh, it, I think it was Saturday night, he said to me, I've got a present for you. And I said, well, okay. And he said, take my driver. I won the 73 British Open with this club. Wow. I said, Tom, I am not going to take your driver that with which you won the British Open. It's criminal. He said... If you don't take it, I'll never speak to you again. So what do I do? Yeah. Take it upstairs. I tried to give him back a club the next day. He wouldn't have it. Still down, down in my office. Here? Mm. Oh, I'm going to have to see that before we leave. <laughs> wow. And I swung it like a couple of times. It was like a broom handle. Really? It was so stiff. Um, I couldn't believe that he could hit the ball so hard and so well with such a stiff shaft. Um, that was that was sad, but the saddest thing that ever happened to me, it was 1979, Fuzzy's year, and uh, Ed Sneed was a real good friend of mine. And... Uh, he worked for ABC television, and I would, when I was not doing the tournaments, I had to do them for the Financial Times, so I would get invited by Ed to the hospitality area at ABC, and when we had him, I used to rent stately homes, um, as a matter of fact, for the British Open, and I had him there once or twice. but. That year, the the gentleman in their green coats at Augusta National had claimed the year before, 78, I had been unable to see from my position in the tower, top back left of the green, whether the ball had actually gone in the water mm. or stopped on the bank. And so they moved me to the camera tower across the bridge, uh, the Saracen Bridge, mm -hmm. and on the left-hand side at the end of the bleachers, at ground level. Oh, so your vantage point was well, it, awful. It, it, I could see whether the ball would go in the water or not. But could you see the shot 
from that vantage point, from where they Not hit? very well, yeah. no. Not as well as I would have liked. It was a ridiculous experiment, which was promptly dropped. But when Ed Sneed came through, birded 15, and he had to walk almost as close as I am to you now to past my little tower to go to the 16th tee, and I said, Ed, he'd just taken a three-stroke lead with three holes to play. Yeah. I said, I believe you've got it now. You said that to him? Yeah. And he, on air or not? On the, no. You know, oh, off no, air, no. yeah, yeah. Mike no, off. because yeah. um, uh, I, I was I'd handed off somewhere else, and um, uh, I said, I, I believe you've got it now, and he... Gave me a thumbs up, and then bogeyed the last three holes. Mm. And I got back to the cabin to not having seen him bogey. Did you know he'd bogeyed those three? No. You just, yeah. Only because, no, I didn't know he'd bogeyed 16 and 17. But when I got to the cabin, I saw him bogey 18 mm. to go into a playoff with Fuzzy Zeller and Tom Watson. And, of course, we all know Fuzzy won. Yeah. Then he'd finished a long time before the playoff, and contrary to what he might tell you, he'd had a couple of beers before the playoff. In between? Oh, definitely. <laughs> oh, no. Just to loosen up, and it did yeah. not work. He didn't know. He didn't think he was going to be in a playoff. Sure, sure. I mean, he just thought he'd lost it. Wow. And <laughs> so did you feel any regret for, you know, give him that I think you've got it? Yeah. And do you, I mean, do you really think, though, that it really had any bearing? No. Yeah. I don't. But, never, I mean, to yourself, you felt that. I felt it definitely had a bearing. I had no right to talk to him and should and should not have done so. But, I mean, he had play, he played the shots. Okay. Yeah. Well, it wasn't in malice. Right? No. It wasn't in malice. No, it was in triumph. Of, <laughs> I thought that, um, boy, that, was, that would be my saddest moment of my entire career. Just because you felt like you, in a way, entered the field to play versus standing back and yes. calling the shots. Yes. Oh, that's tough. Yes. Yeah. Did, did he ever say anything to you about it? I mean, did he ever no, mention it? No, he like, ne never spoke to me about yeah. it. And I didn't dare speak to him. I, I understand 100%. I can't even imagine. In fact, I've seen very little of him ever since. God awful thing to do that's the world isn't yeah. it yeah i mean i'm sure you weren't the only one no right i mean everybody's saying that to him i'm sure as he's walking up yeah you know, you've just won yourself the masters right yeah oh yeah i mean they they were cheering him to the echo as he walked down 16 yeah oh but so sad excuse me you're fine yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So you were a golfer yourself, right? You were a two handicap. Yes, I... Played your whole life? Oh, I must tell you how. Yeah. I was 
seven years of age at the outbreak of the Second World War, living in England, just outside London. I slept with my sister in bunk beds in an underground air raid shelter that my father, a consummate engineer like my grandfather, they were both preeminent in their field. My grandfather was secretary of the Triumph Car and Motorcycle Company, and my father was boss of Skefco ball bearings in Britain, the Swedish ball bearing manufacturer. So, you know, I, I had a big engineering pedigree, and I couldn't, I can barely tell you one end of an engine from the other. I've always let people, specialized people, do that, even when I was racing cars. I would try to look after my engine when racing, but anyhow. Cut a long story short, I became leader of a four-boy bicycle gang. We would bicycle to where the German planes would come down and... Um, crash. Mm, crash. Yeah. Yes. And rob the... Get into the cabin and rob the guys of their wallets and everything... Like dead pilot would be right there. Mm. And we would take uh, instruments out of the instrument panel and sell them on the black market. And, um, you know, uh, it was really ridiculous. Uh, but that's the way war makes children. And anyhow, one day we go, we cycle to uh, Messerschmitt 110, which was a two engine fighter bomber with a crew of three and we almost finished robbing them robbing them and uh, i noticed there was smoke coming out of the port engine and i said boys we better get the hell out of here and so we ran towards the hedge and it exploded the whoa and thankfully the shrapnel went the other way, and then we just got a blast that blew us all into the hedge, a hawthorn hedge. Oh. We, we got some very nasty scratches. Um, but it, that was the end of the bicycle gang. So I went Came to... Came too the, close to getting blown up yourselves, yeah. Yeah. Um, I went to stay with my grandfather in Coventry, and I, I've got to tell you, I went through the Coventry Blitz, too, in my grandmother's uh, wine cellar below the house. Um, um, that was my maternal grandmother. Um, and we were buried for uh, four nights and three days. Yeah. Everything else, it, it caved around you? Well, my maternal grandmother... Had a um, had a three-story townhouse in a terrace, Georgian terrace, you know, very prized houses, a beautiful back garden too. We were dug out, uh, but we had plenty of air. There were the wine cellar was twenty-six stairs down to get into. There was plenty, of, plenty of air, 
And uh, anyhow, uh, my paternal grandfather said to me he'd heard about the bicycle gang and he was furious that but he un- he understood obviously that you know boys will be boys right. and he said young ben he said i'm going to in the faint hope that you will acquire even a veneer of civilization i'm going to give you this golf club and it was one that he'd made himself, a hickory-shafted, cut-down mashie. And um, I was probably, yeah, 10 at the time. Right. And uh, he said, now you can go down the road to the end of the street and there's Coventry Hursel Golf Club that's been shut down since the war started. And you, uh, you can use these balls that I've got, which were pre-war they were more like furnace coke and uh, you can hit those balls and, and see if you like this game but be careful not to fall in any of the bomb craters because they're full of very dirty water muddy water and i did and and fell in love with the game that's how i came to the game really in the so first place out of Robbing yes. pilots and yes. then into yes. being bombed into you know oblivion essentially and buried. Yes, you got your first golf club. Yes, extraordinary circumstances, right? Yeah. Really, yeah. And you spent your entire life playing golf. Yes, I did. But you, I mean, your whole career was golf. Yes. Do you still? Can you still play the game today? No, because I broke my back five years ago. And I severed the T12 vertebra. I have two 18-inch rods supporting my spine, along with three, no, 12 three-inch screws. Mm. Um, I'm very lucky. I mean, if I'd have made a wrong move, I'd have been paralyzed completely. So, you know, I feel that I played golf for 71 years. Lovely, wonderful, fantastic, enjoyable years. Although I was a classic underachiever. <laughs> you know, that was my question. Is kind of finishing up, you know, you've spent your whole life in golf from getting that mashie from your paternal grandfather. Yes. Playing to a two handicap, winning two tournaments, uh, playing at Augusta National, uh, you know, broadcasting at the Masters. And is it difficult now to be so close to the game but not be able to play it? No. No, I'm settled on um, the, how lucky I am to be alive, or at least not paralyzed. Absolutely. And um, I had such good innings. I mean, who could complain about such a magnificent life? I mean, I, I've lived a life of Riley. And finally got the marriage right after the fifth attempt. <laughs> you went for the Grand Slam plus one. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's fantastic. Well, you know, the thing is, Connor, if you are never there, and of course I was endlessly ambitious, I wanted to be the best. Yeah. I wanted to be the top man, which I became. 
in terms of money. My agent said I was the highest ever paid. Yeah. yeah. Pure golfer now. Sure. And uh, so, uh, you know, what can I do but just exult in the magnificent life I've been fortunate enough to lead? Well, before we go, let me ask, let me ask this. For people out there who are looking to get into the golf business, maybe that's being a broadcaster, what advice would you give them for pursuing that passion? Pursue it as hard as you can because there's no life better if you love the game as I do. Um, you know, to travel the world, what better way? Uh, is uh, being in the golf game. Such a glorious game, isn't it? Yes. It is. As Nicholas said, the greatest game of all. Agreed. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on again. I mean, this is the fifth hour, I don't know, that we've spent together. It's been such a blessing in my life. I know the the folks that have listened to the shows we put out have been mesmerized by your stories. They really have. And they really come out and... You never know when you do a show. I mean, you've been in this position. Oh, sure. You did it far better than me. But you know, you never know how the audience is going to react to it. So I'll give you an example. When I, we came out with uh, the show, uh, My Friend Ben Hogan, I knew that show was going to be a hit. I mean, the story was so good. It's an iconic uh, player. I knew it was going to be a hit, and it was. The next show that we did, which were the memories of, of Ben Wright, where we basically played a game of name recognition, where I said a name and you went and told a story, just fabulous stories from history. I didn't know if people would think that was as good. And I had many people say it was better than any show I've ever had because it was such a, a, a unique glimpse into the history of the game in a very personal way. Mm. I mean, it's easy, like I said, to pick up a book and read about golf history or look online, but you don't get the stories behind the events. No. And that's what we had. And I think that's what we got today. So thank you so much. Um, it's only my pleasure. And we'll do it again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we, we're going to just keep doing stories. Okay. But if, no, thank you. If you don't get tired of them. <laughs> no, I will never get tired. The stories are too good. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. What are your thoughts of the, the current state of golf broadcasting and uh, coverage? Dreadful. Uh, it's gone down hugely since my day, but more importantly, Frank Chikinian's day. The man was a genius. He, uh, he produced and directed golf like no one I've ever known, and I've worked with the best directors all over the world, include taking, including taking my own. And there's another story for next time. I, I did the uh, Australian Open two years for Kerry Packer. And after the first year, 38 cameras, all 18 holes, first year. Wow. 43 cameras, second year all 18 holes. I was the host on air for nine and a half hours a day to start till the close, well, start of the broadcast at nine. 
wow. until the close of play. I had a, a gentleman from Liverpool who had settled in Australia, a little gnome of a man, would come in with a plastic bucket from time to time uh, for allowing me to relieve myself. Yeah. And I um, drank wine uh, all through the broadcast. <laughs> Not too much, you know. No, I, right. I paced myself, but you just have to lubricate the chords, you know. Absolutely. What do you think about broadcasters today? What What is a lesson that they could learn? Well, the story, as I think I've told you about my being critiqued by Henry Longhurst. Longhurst, yes. Um, so I won't repeat it, but um, they just talk too much. They seem incapable of realizing that silence can enhance excitement far better than driveling on. And that was made abundantly clear to me in my, after my first uh, Masters for CBS by yeah. Henry Longhurst. Longhurst was a little blunt with you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, had, I had it in... In, I should have had it engraved on my forehead. Um, but to repeat myself, he said, we are nothing but caption writers in a picture business. If you can't improve the quality of the pictures with your words, keep your effing mouth shut. It's great, isn't it? You know, the best advice I... Ever had. It's just let it play out. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And, you know, Frank, Frank Chikinian would say, shut something up and let it play. Which were, you know, and he would fire people. You know, he would, he fired quite a few people in my time. He didn't like me at first because I was appointed over his head by Mr. McPhail. Um, but we became best friends and goodness knows how I revere him. He was an absolute genius. He put a camera over the boxing ring, over the top of the ring for Muhammad Ali, put a camera in the wall at the Indy 500. I mean, there were so many. Oh, he put a camera in the center of a race course so that it would work automatically. Around, yeah. Following the, the, following the horses. I mean, the man did a hell of a lot more than just golf. You know, he, did, he did the U.S. Open tennis every year. I only had one year for doing, helping him. He had me doing interviews at the US Open. And the first I did was Elena Stasi, and he mooned me. Mooned you? On camera. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to Frank, okay, that, that's enough for me. They don't do that at the Masters very often. No. <laughs> <laughs> the green coats would not enjoy that. No. Oh, fantastic. So he had a sense of humor, too. As much yeah. as being a bulldog, he had a good sense of humor. Oh, he had a wonderful sense of humor. 
he could but it on the job it was all business yeah but he was only interested in the quality of his product and uh i i've never admired a man any more than i've admired frank yeah it's amazing really when you think about his work yes how silence is key how letting the action play out i mean he was kind of like a movie director or maybe even an artist he had a vision of what the telecast should show yes and then he painted that picture with your words or lack thereof sometimes yes and i remember distinctly um i the only time i couldn't hear what frank said was after Jack Nicholas's Eagle 3 at 15 in 1986 Masters. And we always had a cookout after the Masters at one of the houses that that he rented on our behalf at the Westlake Country Club. And Weisskopf was doing steaks that evening. And um, when Frank got home very late because he always had to shut up shop you know and get mm-hmm. get everything ship shape to return the club to normal the next day and uh, I apologized to him I said Frank it's the only time we've worked together I couldn't hear you I could not hear you for the noise the folks were making about Nicholas as you can imagine you know, and uh, he said, don't apologize to me, young Ben. He said, you did absolutely the perfect thing. You stayed silent and let the swell of the applause for Nicholas play. And as he walked from the 15th to the 16th, he, he couldn't have been more perfect. And I wish some of your... American colleagues would observe that point. That was it. I mean, it's not a bad gig, Ben, getting paid $10,000 a day to say nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Ben just sits in the tower and says nothing for the entire day, and Trichinian probably would have loved it. (laughs) Yeah, I, I can't believe my luck. It's been fantastic. And, you know, I think the cool thing about the Masters is that so many people grew up listening to you in the Masters. Their memories, if not on the course, are of living that moment with you. Mm. You know? Mm. I mean, have you, I'm sure you've had people come up to you and said something of the same, right? Yes. Uh, I've had a lot of people come up to me, literally hundreds Maybe thousands of people have known me by my, by my voice rather than the face. They say, you're the Ben Wright, you know. Recognizing your voice? Yes. Yeah. Which is extraordinary to me, but there we are. I don't know about you, but is there anything better than an 88-year-old broadcast legend recounting the past? Unfortunately, there was one moment that we had to cut from our show due to licensing. During our interview with Ben Wright and his connection with the Beatles, 
I played Ben that very first song that the Beatles performed on his TV show. Ben's head tilted as if he were being taken back in time. He closed his eyes for a second, just to listen. And a satisfying grin came across his face. When he opened his eyes, they seemed a bit glassy. And I felt like, in that very moment, I was transported back in time with him. Then again, he might have been pining for that Irish tenor, because he never thought much of those songs from those raggedy boys from Liverpool. Until next time, yours in Beatles history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>